Starting off with a confession this morning. It's good for the soul, apparently. And uh, so this morning I'm doing a number of things that I wouldn't normally do. Uh, So the first thing is that I've changed what I'm preaching on. So those of you who came because you were desperate to hear the parable of the net, um, you'll have to come another time. Uh, I'm not going to do that this morning, which is what we were planning to do. Um, But we, uh, um, uh, Lynn and uh, Phil and Emma and Matt and Suze and me, we, we went down to Southampton a couple of weeks ago to the Advanced Leaders Conference. And we heard a guy called Steve Van Ryan from Jubilee Church in Cape Town talking about the parable of the sower. Actually, he was, he was talking about something else, but that was the way into it. And I just felt that God was said to me over and over as I was listening to that, this is, this is for the church. So that's what we're going to do. So I know that Justin preached on the parable of the sower last week, because I've listened to it, and it's a brilliant sermon. So if you haven't listened to it, please go on the website, they'll get the podcast. If you don't know how to download a podcast, I can't believe that. Who doesn't know how to download a podcast? No, well, you, have to, you need to speak to Matt. I, it just turns up on my phone. I don't know how it does it, but it does. So there we go. But um, Justin's uh, sermon last week was brilliant. Um, so, but, I do, but it is the way into what I want to talk about. Um, so, and the sermon then is based pretty much on what Steve Van Ryan said. So, you know, um, there's a lot of his stuff in it. Uh, so let's, let's read the parable of the sower, but in Mark, so it's Mark chapter 4. If you've got a church Bible, it's on page 1005. Very familiar words to us. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that had gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil, came up, produced, grew and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60 or even 100 times. Then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything that is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes 
and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even a hundred times what was sown. As I said, very familiar story. And the first question I want to ask is this. You know, it's a, it's a Sunday school question. Why is the farmer sowing seed? And the answer is, I hope, obvious. The farmer is sowing seed in order to get a crop, to get a harvest. The farmer wants fruitfulness. The second thing I want us to notice is that although we call this the parable of the sower, um, in many ways it's really about the soil. It's really about the condition of the soil. The farmer sows the seed, but whether it's productive or fruitful or not depends upon the soil. And our hearts are the soil into which the seed of God, the word of God, is planted, and it's all about the response. The fruitfulness depends upon the condition of the soil, the receptiveness of the soil for the seed. Any gardener knows that the condition of the soil is critical for fruitfulness. You only have to watch Gardener's World on a Friday evening, and you would be totally sure of that. I spend hours and hours and hours digging my vegetable plot, breaking it up, weeding it, feeding it, putting manure on it, because the, the condition of the soil is critical. A little bit of artistic license there in terms of my gardening, I must admit. But the condition of the soil is critical. And Steve Van Ryan's talk um, down in Southampton the other week was, was about this, hindrances to fruitfulness. What stops us as Christians being fruitful in the kingdom of God? And I'm using fruitfulness here, I hope in the way that Jesus does in the parable, about building the kingdom of God, both becoming more effective disciples ourselves and making, teaching, helping, bringing others to maturity as disciples in Jesus. It's not just about numbers, although the parable is about numbers. But when I look for a harvest in my vegetable beds, I'm not just looking at how many potatoes have I grown. I am interested in that. But also, I want them to be the biggest they can be, the best they can be, the tastiest they can be. It's not just about numbers, it's about quality. That's all part of what it means to be fruitful. And the thing about growing anything is that it's an organic, natural process. The farmer can do everything he can to make that, that soil right. He can 
you know, manure it, break it up, weed it, and all those things. But at the end of the day, the growth comes from God. And apparently in those days, uh, a good harvest would be 10 times what you sowed. And so even the 30 times crop here is, is an abundant harvest. It's, it's a supernatural harvest. It's something much more than could be reasonably expected. And in this parable that we just read, um, as you know, Jesus lists three things uh, that can lead to a lack of fruitfulness. So he talks about the birds snatching away the word, which represents Satan. He talks about rocky ground representing shallow commitment and people giving up. And he talks about thorns representing the cares and the worries of this life that strangle faith and make us unfruitful. And as as Justin pointed out last week, this is a great parable because it's one that Jesus actually gives us the interpretation. But what I want to concentrate on this morning is, is the first one. How is it... How is it that Satan prevents us being fruitful for God? And I'm saying that in the context that um, there is a spiritual battle going on all around us. And we know that you know, in our lives there are seasons when that becomes particularly evident for us, maybe as individuals and, and, and as a church. And I know that somebody who's, who's sitting here this morning told me um, a few weeks ago that they, they, could, they could sense that battle over this church, spiritual battle going on, um, which is one of the reasons why I chose to speak about this this morning. So in, in, the, in the, the parable, the fruitfulness is prevented when the birds come and snatch away the seed that falls on the path. And presumably... The path has been trodden down hard, so it's not receptive to the seed of the word. And Jesus explains himself that the birds represent Satan, who comes and takes away the word that was sown in the people. And and a question I want to ask is this morning, what does that look like in our lives? What does it look like if Satan comes and takes a word that's been sown in us? It's what what Jesus says in in verse 15. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them and prevents them being fruitful. What does that look like? So the first thing I want us to realize is the reality of Satan. And the reality of the spiritual battle that we are all in. And there are two equal and opposite mistakes that we can make over this. One is that we uh, disbelieve it. We don't take Satan seriously. We don't take seriously the influence he has in our lives, in the society around us, in the church. Because our culture doesn't take Satan seriously. He's portrayed as a man in tights with horns and a pitchfork and a tail. And he's like a pantomime villain. 
And when we see that kind of portrayal going on around us, it's easy to say, well, that's nonsense. And so we don't take Satan seriously. You know, we're coming up to Halloween. The shops are full of all sorts of nonsense, trivializing devilish things. And uh, that's the world that we live in. That's how the world trivializes and minimizes Satan. Um, uh, Esther is organizing a light party here on uh, on Halloween for for the teenagers and for their friends. And uh, it would be great to to pray, support that. It's a great initiative. So that's the first thing. We, We can be tempted to just disbelieve it. We don't believe in Satan. Uh, we don't see him doing anything, and therefore we just discount it. So that's the first danger. The second danger is equally bad, which is that we have an unhealthy interest or fear in the work of Satan in our lives. And the extreme, you know, in the extreme, there are people who see Satan in everything. They see his hand in everything, and, and it can cripple us with fear. And actually, for Satan, both of those errors are equally as good. And he can use both of them to distance us from God, to neutralize our lives in the kingdom, and to cause us to be unfruitful. And the antidote to both of those incorrect views is to look at Scripture, and to get a scriptural balance, and to get God's perspective. And so what does that look like? Well, the truth, of course, is, and I've read it earlier, we can't miss it, that Jesus believed in the reality of Satan. And it, apparently, Satan is mentioned by name, by Jesus, more than any other person in the New Testament. So we can't acknowledge that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and then ignore something which is clearly a very significant part of the Gospels, a very significant part of Jesus' teaching and understanding and experience. So there are three things that we need to bear in mind over this. The first thing to say is this, that God is sovereign. God is almighty God. He is the creator of the universe. He is the one who has eternity in his hands. And Satan's power, in contrast, is very limited. We don't live in what they call a dualist universe where you have two equal and opposite forces of good and evil and they are battling it out uh, head-to-head, toe-to-toe, like Star Wars. That's not... That's not the biblical picture of the the conflict that we are in. God alone is all-powerful. Satan is a created spiritual being who rejected God's authority and led a rebellion against God's authority and rule. But his power and influence is limited. But it is nevertheless real. And his purpose is to oppose the kingdom of God 
in the lives of people. And we know, uh, we're going to be celebrating it later, that at the cross, Satan was defeated once and for all. The Alpha course talks about um, the cross being like D-Day. That that was the decisive point of victory in the war. But, but actually VE Day wasn't celebrated for almost another year because of the ongoing conflict. But the, the victory was won, but it still had to be worked out. It's not a perfect illustration, but it gives you a bit of an idea that at the cross, Jesus conquered uh, sin, the world, and the devil, but we are still living in the mopping up operation where Satan has some power and influence and he is working to prevent the kingdom of God. So that's the first thing. God is sovereign. That's the absolute thing we must bear in mind. We're not talking about equal and opposite forces. The second thing that we need to bear in mind is that we are personally responsible for how we respond to God. We are personally responsible for the condition of the soil in our hearts. Satan is going to try and influence us to draw us away from relationship with our loving Heavenly Father. But he has no power to make us do anything. We choose how we respond to his influences. Just as we choose how we respond to, to God. That's the, that's the second thing. We are responsible. Third thing is, actually covering what I was saying before, that Satan and the demonic world are real. You cannot read the Bible and especially the New Testament, without seeing that for all of those New Testament writers, the, the, the world of Satan and the demonic is real. And we live in a very different culture. We live in a so-called scientific age where much of society believes that we just live in a material world. There's no such thing as a spiritual dimension to life. For many people, that's... That's the first barrier that, that, that needs to fall down before they can accept that there's a God who loves them. They don't even believe that there's anything other than flesh and blood and atoms and physical stuff. And so often it is when we become Christians, when we become switched on to God, switched on to the spiritual world, that we also become aware of Satan, we become aware of this spiritual conflict. And some of us, I know what, are aware of the influence of Satan in our lives and in the lives of others and in, the life, in, in our society and in the world. But for some of us, maybe this is something that we haven't ever seriously considered. Steve Van Ryn said this the other week, life isn't like a war, it is a war. It's not like a war, it is a war. And whether we're Christians or not here this morning, we are caught up in a spiritual battle. 
So for non-believers, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age, i.e. Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's why when we're, when we're sharing our faith with other, with other people, we have to be prayerful. It's a spiritual battle. It's not just all about the quality of the presentation, getting our arguments all lined up, having a convincing presentation, running a slick alpha course. It's a spiritual battle. Because Satan has blinded the minds of the people that we live around. And if we don't recognize that, we're not going to make progress in building the kingdom. So that's for for non-believers. For Christians, Satan is doing all he can to undermine you, to compromise you, to spoil the relationship you have with your heavenly father. That's what he is about. That's what he does. And none of us are immune to this. None of us are immune to this. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So we all have to be watchful. And we're not going to grow out of this spiritual battle. As we mature in the faith the tactics of the enemy might change. But they're still going to be there. <coughs> Steve Van Ryan said this, the more you are involved in leadership, the more you are subject to attack. So let's not think that this is something that we're going to kind of grow out of. Actually, it's the other way around. The more you're involved in leadership, the more you will be subject to attack. And people that go to this church, we know that's true. Being under attack is not a sign of weakness or of immaturity or of ungodliness. In fact, it's the other way around. So in the Old Testament, Job was subject to spiritual attack, not because he was weak and ungodly, but quite the opposite, because he was upright and righteous. Devil doesn't bother with those who actually are not going to be effective anyway. Jesus himself, as we know, was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, although we know he was without sin. Peter was attacked. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Paul was attacked. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And Paul, in his writings, he he actually says he wants us to be aware of how Satan operates. 2 Corinthians 2.11 What I have forgiven, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. And then he says this, for we are not unaware of his schemes. And Paul and the New Testament wants us to be aware of Satan's schemes. 
If you have a powerful enemy scheming against you, planning to harm you, it is dangerous to be unaware, isn't it? How is he likely to attack you? What is it likely to look like? You know, it reminds me of those kind of Second War, World War posters. Know your enemy. James 4, 7 says this, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And in order to resist him, we need to be aware of his schemes. We need to be able to recognize what he's doing. And Steve Van Ryn, he, he talked about three ways that Satan uses to defeat Christians, to make us unfruitful. And the first thing is temptation. Temptation is not sin, as we've seen. Jesus was tempted, yet he was without sin. But temptation is part of every Christian life. If you read biographies of sort of well-known Christians, particularly from um, uh, sort of the Puritan type period, these guys that were so holy in our eyes were the ones who just recognized their sinfulness, recognized the temptations that they were subject to. And often it's going to be subtle and it's, going to be over, it's not going to be open necessarily. It might be something which appears to be good. But if we twist it, can take us over. One of these Puritan guys called Brooks says, the temptation is often like a baited fish hook. The bait promises honor, pleasure, riches. But the hook delivers contempt, shame, Misery, poverty. And we overcome this by recognizing what God has placed off limits and aligning our limits with his. Even small things matter. If we take a small step, the next time it's easier to take a bigger one, isn't it? We need to look for the lie in the bait. The lie says, did God really say We can be tempted because of our success. We can be tempted to think we don't need God anymore. We can be tempted by comparing ourselves with others. Look what they do. If it's okay for them, it must be okay for me. Sometimes uh, we can be blinded by our pride. So that's the first weapon that Satan uses, temptation. And hopefully all of us can see the things around us that, that, that tempt us. 1 Corinthians 10 says this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So that's the first thing, temptation. The second weapon that Satan's going to use against us is accusation. 
One of the names of the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And that's what he does. And, and that can take many forms. It could be reminding us of past sin, reminding us of our failures and our inadequacies, reminding us of how immature we are, reminding us that we have a, a constant struggle with the same issues, highlighting our weaknesses, belittling us, undermining us, taking away our confidence in God. I don't know whether that sounds familiar to some here. So how do we counter, how to, how do we counter that? We have to remember that the devil at, at heart is a liar. He is a deceiver, a twister of God's truth. Like we were saying in the Garden of Eden, the, the, the serpent approaches Eve and says, Did God say? So we need to be sure that we understand what God's word does say. 2 Corinthians 10, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Don't let your thoughts run away with you. Test them against the truth of God's word. Jesus, you know, when he was tempted in the wilderness, he, he, he said... Satan came and said, it's written, it's written. And Jesus' response was, it is written. That's why understanding God's word is so important for us as Christians. That's how we defend ourselves against these, these kind of attacks of, of the devil. We stand on the truth of God's word. If we don't know God's word, how are we going to do that? Where there are things that are wrong, we need to... We need to repent we need to turn away from them but we also have to make sure that when we do that we accept God's promise of forgiveness 1 John 1 9 if we confess our sins he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness so don't fight back on the basis of our performance but on the basis of our position so when we hear the voice of the accuser, don't say, well, I go to church every week. I give in the offering every week. I never swear. I never get drunk. I never take drugs. I'm honest and decent. I work hard, and so on and so on. We don't defend ourselves on the basis of our performance. But our defense is, I'm a child of God. I'm chosen. I'm loved. I'm forgiven. Jesus has paid the price for my sin. I have confessed and I'm free. That's the basis on which we stand, not on our own merits. And that's the way that we have to deal with those voices of accusation. You see the difference there? Our defense is not ourselves and our righteousness, but it's Christ and the cross and his righteousness. And the third tactic of Satan is isolation. And Steve Van Ryan, because he comes from South Africa, he, he talked about, um, you know, uh, Peter talks about the devil being like a roaring lion. And he, he talked about lions attacking a group of wildebeest. You see it on telly, don't you? And, and, and if a lion runs at a herd... Um, it, 
it kind of follows one and then it follows another and, and it, it kind of gets disorientated. And as long as the herd stays together, they're safe. And what, what the lions do when they're hunting is they isolate one of the, one of the herd. Once that wildebeest or whatever it is, is isolated, then the lions surround it and it's got no hope. It's, it's killed, it becomes prey. And I wrote down in my notes two weeks ago, this is massive. And I, as I look around the fellowship, I have to say I know that there are people who are isolating themselves. They're kind of on the fringes. They don't allow others to get too close. And they are making themselves vulnerable. The New Testament knows no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. I know it can be very tempting because the church is such a messy place, isn't it? Because we're all broken people. People don't always agree with me. They don't worship the way I like. They don't preach very well. Don't like the way they do kids' work or run the fellowship groups. And anyway, those other Christians, they're always insisting that I should do things differently or have a different relationship or not do that habit. To be honest, it's better just me and Jesus. Because me and Jesus, we always see eye to eye. You see the danger in that? It's like the wildebeest that's been separated off from the herd. Because we're not allowing ourselves to be challenged or encouraged or built up by the body of Christ, which is the way God's ordained it. That's why fellowship is so, so, so important. If we cut ourselves off from fellowship, we are isolating ourselves. We're putting ourselves at risk. And in the wider context, Steve Van Ryn said this, when local churches become isolated, they become vulnerable. I marked that down in highlights as well. When local churches become isolated, they become vulnerable. And again, we know the truth of that painfully. That's why we're looking to build connections now with other churches through the advanced connection with Andy Ollerton coming, etc. So that we're not isolated. In the fellowship, we are accountable to one another but also as a fellowship, we are accountable in relationship to others. And then lastly, I want to just consider our relationships within the church. Paul in Ephesians, I, I, I just love this. Ephesians 4, verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's one of the ways that Satan is going to make us unfruitful is to cause division in the church. That's why there is so much in the Bible about the importance of unity. It requires every effort. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit 
through the bond of peace. If it wasn't difficult, we wouldn't have to make effort, would we? If it was easy, well, it just happened. But it isn't easy. It needs effort. We need to be on our guard against things that are going to spoil our unity. We need to be on our guard against anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, jealousy. And again, I know that all those things are active amongst us. So let us make every effort to get rid of those things, to recognize them, to nip them in the bud, to root them out. Don't allow them to take a hold on us. These things are anti-gospel. They are fertile ground that Satan will use and does use to disrupt the church and make us unfruitful. And we are all responsible for the soil of our hearts. We're going to be sharing communion now. And it's a reminder to us that Satan has been defeated. That's what the cross is about. It's one of the things that the cross is about. So, we have to be aware of Satan. We should be mindful of his schemes. We should be looking at our own lives and making sure that we are not listening to his lies, his deceptions. We need to make sure that we're keeping an open relationship with Father God and with our brothers and sisters. But at the end of the day, Satan has been defeated. We are on the victory side. But that's not to say that he doesn't have an effect and he can't be harmful to us, to the church, to the work, to us being fruitful here for the kingdom of God. So um, we're going to celebrate, really, over the communion. We're going to celebrate that victory that Jesus has won at the cross. And uh, I've forgotten what the song is, but Joe will come up and play. And... uh, Then we'll share communion together. George.